morning. If you have your Bible this morning, please turn to 2 Timothy, the letter of 2 Timothy towards the end uh, of the New Testament. Today is kind of a, a weird moment for me um, because we begin this series this morning uh, as the last series that I will preach uh, here at Countryside. Uh, last month, if you were here, you'll remember me uh, blubbering through the news that I'll be uh, moving to a church in Indiana, uh, and my last sermon uh, before that will be, will be our last Sunday in January. And so I say today is weird because I've been thinking for a number of weeks now, uh, what do you preach as a last series? Uh, what, what could I pick that might adequately express uh, my gratitude for all of you, my love for all of you, uh, express and encourage you uh, with the final four weeks? And as I reflected on this, I was drawn to uh, this letter uh, of 2 Timothy. In many ways, this letter is, is similar to lots of others that Paul wrote that we see throughout the New Testament. Uh, we, we are used to Paul writing letters. We wouldn't have most of the New Testament were it not for Paul's correspondence to the churches. But 2 Timothy is a little bit different. 2 Timothy uh, contains the last recorded words we have of the Apostle Paul. These are Paul's uh, parting words. Uh, and, and last words, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> are really kind of an odd thing. I mean, if you have a, a chance and, and cognizance to be mentally present in that moment right before death, you know, what would you say? Uh, I think, you know, our generation, probably the most famous uh, last words are those uh, from Todd Beamer on Flight 93 on 9-11, uh, as he and his fellow uh, pi- um, uh, passengers took over the cockpit from the terrorists, and of course, uh, saying beforehand, let's roll. Uh, his wife hearing those words before he hung up the phone. And, and I looked some others up as well, uh, and you might be surprised, some of these historic figures, the last things that we know they said. I have one for Leonardo da Vinci, uh, one of the most gifted painters in, in history. And he said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. (laughs) He's like the greatest painter ever, and he still says it wasn't good enough. Uh, Winston Churchill said simply, I'm bored with it all. Uh, My favorite, uh, Barry White, the singer to his nurse, said, leave me alone, I'm fine. (laughs) Apparently not. Uh, But as Paul writes this letter, uh, his, his final words, he does so from a prison cell. It's actually the second time that Paul has been imprisoned in Rome. In the book of Acts, we see the book close with Paul in prison, having made his appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he would have had the right to appeal to be heard by the emperor himself. And so Paul is in prison, which is more of kind of a house arrest at this point. He's granted visitors coming and going. He's free to have his scriptures and to write letters to the churches. But as he sits in prison in Rome for the second time, He does so now in chains, awaiting his imminent death. Persecution against Christians has reached this fever pitch uh, under the Roman Emperor Nero, and so Paul is writing this letter uh, to his protege, Timothy, who he calls his dear son, uh, to encourage him in the ministry that Paul now leaves behind. And we... This letter is kind of interesting. As you read, you notice a number of unique elements. You see Paul, uh, his humanity, shine through and come to the forefront. We, we think of Paul as, uh, as almost this perfect figure at times, you know, this prolific writer, this obedient apostle. And, and while he remains obedient, we see some discouragement within him. We see him having these feelings of abandonment from his friends. But despite his discouragement, you see this confident hope in heaven uh, emerge. 
that his, his hope is in Christ and his hope is in the work that he has done for Christ. Knowing what God has given him to do and having done it faithfully, he holds on to that hope. But I'm also intrigued by this letter and, and I wanted to preach it these last four weeks because uh, as Paul's final words, I can't help but think that he had to choose these words carefully as he sought to encourage Timothy. This might not be the last letter that he wrote. It's the last one that we have. And he might not have known it was his uh, final letter to Timothy. But for the most part, he knew his life was drawing to a close. He knew his time left was limited. And so his words, I think, he chose carefully. I think about it. If you were writing one last letter, if you were having one last conversation with your best friend or your spouse or your son or daughter, you know, what would you want it to say? You probably wouldn't say things like, you know, how about them Chiefs? Man, they had a, a heck of a game last week. Or I hear the weather is going to be unseasonably warm next week. That'll be nice. Or could you turn down, could you, could you pipe down? I can't hear the TV. You know, these are not the things you contain to the last words. You would use these last moments to encourage your loved ones, to express your love for them, to leave them with a sense of your legacy, maybe give them a challenge to live up to. And these are all things that we see Paul express in this letter to Timothy, and it's the reason that I wanted to share in this letter with you. Uh, Verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says, For this reason I remind you, speaking to Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul gives Timothy this charge to fan this giftedness that God has given him into a flame. And it's from this charge that I get the title for this series. As Paul reflects back on Timothy's ordination into ministry, this moment where Timothy was set apart to do the work that God had given him to do, when hands were laid on him, Paul says to him now, don't lose that spark. Don't let the passion go out, but nurture that spark until it becomes a blaze. And this title is really with the potential in all of us this letter uh, can do. This title shows all of us what this letter uh, can work in our lives. That we've all experienced moments of disappointment or discouragement or defeat in our faith or in our lives, but Paul challenges us to keep that ember alive by allowing the promises of the gospel to fan it into a blazing inferno of purpose and passion. And so this morning as we look at the first chapter, we might be surprised that the, the, the recipe that Paul gives Timothy as, as the pr- process to which you fan into flame this gift uh, is not maybe what we might think. We might expect Paul to give Timothy this, you know, revealed new powerful truth. You know, some mystery revealed that only Paul knows about and is giving to Timothy kind of the inside scoop in all of this. Or you might expect uh, Paul to kind of look back on his decades of ministry and say, Timothy, these are the things that I have learned. You know, the do's and the don'ts. I have a book on my bookshelf from Bob Russell uh, called After 50 Years of Ministry. And he talks about all of the things that he uh, would do again and the things that he would change. Those are really helpful to me as a, a young minister. So you might expect something like that from Paul. Or you might expect even Paul to give him just kind of like a, a, a breakdown of 10 Simple steps to feed your fire, you know, this self-help book. But instead of any of those, what Paul offers Timothy as an encouragement isn't really new or revolutionary. To encourage Timothy and to encourage us, Paul simply focuses on the gospel. And, and this is kind of odd to me, 
Because as I think about it, it would be kind of like your you know, high school literature teacher approaching you before you take the SAT and say, look, I know this test has the possibility to determine your future from here on out, and so I want to offer you some encouragement. It's called the ABC song. You just sing the ABCs every night before you go to bed, and you are guaranteed to pass this test. Or it's like going for your driving test to get your driver's license and your dad, as you're sitting in the lobby waiting for your name to be called, leans over and places a Hot Wheel in your palm and say, why don't you, you know, push us around on the floor a little bit, get one last spin to refresh yourself. These things are, are the basics. You know, you'd think Timothy looking at this, with, you know, Paul's encouragement, say, you know, the gospel, Paul, really, that's like basic stuff, elementary stuff. I mean, Timothy, as a, a seasoned minister, would be much in need of strength and encouragement and instead is offered the basics of the faith. And I can't help but think that, if it were me anyway, he probably wanted to have a little more, expected a little more. But I think we see the beauty in this, that as Paul focuses our attention on the gospel, the true nature of the gospel, it's exactly the encouragement that we need when times are tough. And so Paul unpacks the gospel, defines the gospel in three ways this morning, gives three characteristics. And first he says that the gospel is a gospel of power. The gospel is a gospel of power. Now I know this is a bold claim to make when you are sitting in a prison cell for your testimony about that gospel. But nonetheless, Paul says the gospel is a gospel of power. Verse 7, he says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Looking at what we know uh, about Timothy from other places in the Bible, we can probably define Timothy as uh, not really what you would call a natural-born leader. Uh, Timothy had been stationed as a minister in a church in Ephesus, and he probably didn't feel like he was up to the task. In the first letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he says to him, uh, don't let others, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. He also talks about uh, the stomach problem that Timothy is having, I, I think, uh, being connected to stress. And, and so we look at Timothy in this pastorate, in this position, where people are doubting his age or doubting her, his experience, doubting his ability to handle the stresses of ministry. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe not vocational ministry, but all of us have a ministry that God has given us to do. And maybe you've felt unable or unfit to do what he has called you to do. I, mean, I know that I've been in these positions before. I came to Countryside at 24 years old, full of hope and dreams and youthful optimism, but also full of fears of failure and doubts. But in the midst of this, we're reminded that God did not equip us with fear and apprehension, but rather with power, love, and self-discipline. And like I said, this sounds well and good until you realize the guy writing these words is doing so chained to a Roman guard. It's not exactly a position of power. But we see that Jesus never came seeking prominence, position, or power for himself. That the power that we have to the truth of the gospel, the power that we see modeled by Jesus, is not the world's kind of power. In fact, not, not only did Jesus not seek these things, but in large part, he gave many of them up to come and live among his creation. Now, instead, Jesus' power came through the resurrection. And that's the same power available to us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul also writing, says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. 
This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul says, I I hope that you understand God's power because that's the power through his spirit that's living in you. Jesus' resurrection and the promise of our resurrection leads us to ponder the question that if death is off the table, what is there ultimately to be afraid of? Paul sits in this position of unpower, uh, of weakness by the world's standards. He sits in a cell with his death looming ever closer, and still he says the gospel is powerful. It's nothing to be ashamed of because through Christ, death is ultimately off the table. He realizes there is nothing that can be done to him that Christ could not remedy and has not remedied in the victory of the resurrection. He says the gospel is a gospel of power. He goes on to the second characteristic to remind Timothy and to remind us the gospel is a gospel of grace. Verse 9, he says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He says we have been saved by this grace, not through anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. But yet, as we read these words of Paul says of the gospel of grace, we kind of see this uh, contradiction. He says we've first been, you know, saved to be called to this holy life, to this holy living, but we've also been saved through grace. Nothing that we could do, all the holiness in the world, can't save us. And so we get this kind of paradox that goes back and and forth that we see other places in Paul's writings. In Ephesians, he, he says that we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, but then he goes on the very next verse to say that we've been created to do good works. And so we're left with kind of this question of how to navigate a gospel of grace with the expectation to live out what we've been given. And I have to admit uh, that uh, this embarrassing way that I kind of learned uh, this lesson a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We were on our way uh, home for vacation to Florida. It was about 2 a.m. and I was driving and I saw red and blue lights uh, flashing behind me. And I was pulled over and told that I was going 64 and a 45. Uh, that's going to be a big ticket. I'm thinking there's no way that I'm going to get out of this one. I mean, clearly I was speeding unintentional. I am uh, proudly a grandpa driver. I mean, I thought the speed limit was 65 and I was going 64. Okay, that's, that's where I'm at in this story. I, I seriously, like, never speed. But this cop pulls me over and he gives me the whole spiel. You know, do you know how fast you're going? Do you know why I pulled you over? Uh, and goes through this whole thing and and, and then he says at the end, he says, you know, it's not really the end of the world. I think, yeah, it's easy for a cop to give you a big ticket to say it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of your world. Uh, but then he says, I think I'm just going to give you a warning. Like, what Christmas miracle? <laughs> and so he gives me this, this warning and, and takes me back. And, and, uh, but through this, you know, I realized that there's nothing I could have done uh, to get that cop to give me a warning. You know, I was, I was guilty. I was going 20 miles, over, 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. I mean, I, I broke the law unintentionally, but I still broke it. And his giving me a warning was, was completely an act of grace. There is nothing that I could have done to earn it. But in response to that grace, uh, a change took place in me. Because I, I began to think, you know, I need to pay more attention. 
It's early morning and, and I need to be focused on what I'm doing. I need to be more aware of my speed, more aware of others on the road. His grace made me a better driver. I, I didn't earn the grace by being a better driver. The cop didn't say, you know, I'm going to follow you for the next 20 miles and if you can demonstrate that you're driving well, then I'll give you uh, a pass. No, he gave that to me to start. But the grace created a, a shift in me that led me to want to be a better driver. There's nothing that we could do to earn God's grace. I mean, you know that. But that grace should create in us a desire to live holy lives, to live that grace out. It should create in us a shift to want to live the way that he has called us to live. And so Paul seeks to encourage us by reminding us of the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ's death on our behalf isn't just something done for us. It's something done in us. It's not just something done for us, it's something done in us, that when we truly understand grace, we live out grace. I can imagine because of the things that I just mentioned about Timothy, you know, people looking down on him uh, because he was young or his experience or uh, his stress over pastoring the Ephesian church. Um, I can imagine that he could serve to need to be reminded uh, to live out grace. Uh, I'm sure in Timothy's position there were certain church members that he thought, you know, if they went down the road to the Galatian Christian church, then I'd be okay with that. There's a phrase that I've heard before among preacher friends, and uh, it says, sometimes sheep bite, uh, which is to say that sometimes uh, congregation members, you know, the sheep, your flock, sometimes sheep bite. Sometimes even Christians wound you. Sometimes even people covered by the blood of Jesus who have been saved and sanctified can say unkind words or be immature or or just straight up jerks. But that doesn't mean we stop living out grace. The grace that we have received is the grace that we live out, even among those who have hurt us, even in the midst of our discouragement or, or disappointments or defeat, Even when people are unkind to us, we live out grace. And as we live that out, we see the last characteristic of this gospel. And Paul says the gospel is a gospel of purpose. The gospel is a gospel of power, a gospel of grace, but also a gospel of purpose. Verse 11, he concludes, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I think we notice really what Paul doesn't say more than what he does say maybe in this passage he doesn't say you know i received this gospel of power and this gospel of grace and then i sat back and lived the easy life because i think one of the greatest single greatest threats to christianity not threatening to extinction we know that god's plans cannot uh, be thwarted but uh, the greatest threat to our carrying out the work he's given us to do is really inaction it's inaction that threatens the work that we have to do. Because I think there's this temptation to have this, you know, I got mine mentality. You know, where we come to Jesus and and we accept him and we pray and we read our Bible and we attend church on Sundays, but we never truly engage with our faith in an active way. 
The biggest reason I think that we live this way or tempted to live this way is because we don't want to take risks. We don't want to risk our reputation or we don't want to risk failure and we don't want to risk persecution. And so we just try to have our you know, little Jesus box where we can pull them out when no one is looking and, and you know, say our prayers and have our quiet time and then put them away for later and, and not really bother anyone else with it. I think a little bit of uh, our, my niece and, and my son Chandler uh, playing as they were home for Christmas break uh, this uh, past week. Uh, Olivia, our, our niece, is a little bit older and uh, she's a little bit more mature and stuff. And So they're playing Play-Doh together. And she, as a girl, you know, has all these Play-Dohs that have glimmers and sparkles in them. And she's got butterfly cutouts and pony accessories. And as opposed to my son, who's like, Play-Doh, you mash it all together and mix it until it turns like a nice puke green. <laughs> and they're playing together and, and it's all going well. Olivia really wants to play with them. And she's got that kind of big sister going on, kind of just wants to be there for her little cousin and, and until she starts to see some of the bu- butterflies kind of overlapping and getting a little squished together. And, and suddenly, uh, you know, the glittery Play-Doh starts to disappear from the equation. She doesn't want to deal with the mess. And I think a lot of times when it comes to the gospel, we can be afraid of getting involved in the messiness of people's lives and to mix with them and, and relate with them and, and to risk for them. It's just easier to, to keep ours to ourselves and not worry about their deal because there is a risk. Paul says, I am in chains because I took risks for the gospel. But he also reminds us that the Redeemer is greater than the risk. He says, I know who I've put my trust in. And I know that I have done what I have done and what he has called me to do lies secure in who he is because of his power and his promise. He says, the risks that have turned into realities are nothing in the face of my Redeemer who holds my hope securely. And we can have this hope and this security because the gospel isn't just an idea. The gospel is a man. The gospel is a man named Jesus who through his spirit guides and guards what he has given us to be used for his glory. This man who took upon our sin and our shame and our rebellion upon himself in the cross until he uttered his final words, it is finished. This man who who showed us what it was, who he claimed to be, God with us, through his powerful resurrection, a resurrection and a life that we can enjoy in him. You see, we find power and grace and purpose in the gospel because ultimately we find power and purpose and grace in Jesus. And so this morning, maybe you're feeling a little bit uh, like Timothy, or at least how I imagine Timothy felt. Maybe a little overwhelmed, maybe a little discouraged, maybe a little defeated. Maybe a little unequipped to do what God has placed in front of you to do. And if you're there this morning, I want to encourage you simply with the basics, with this gospel of Jesus, of his power, of his grace, of his purposes for our lives. That we all have work to be done. We all have the giftedness that God has given us that we have been called to fan into flame. And maybe that work takes you to your workplace or to your house, your family, your community, your neighbors, your neighborhood, wherever it takes you. We've been called 
to live out this giftedness that God has given us to accomplish his kingdom purposes. To cling to the gospel. Cling to Jesus. Maybe some of you are, are feeling the same way, but not because you're discouraged in, in your, your ministry, but maybe just because you're distant from Jesus. And maybe you've never uh, made the choice to follow him as his disciple, to commit your life to him, to bend your knee to him as Lord and King. Or maybe you've just grown distant. Maybe you're discouraged because you feel unconnected, disconnected from the, the power and the grace and the purpose that is available to you. And so either one of these cases, whether you're discouraged in your work or distant from your Savior, uh, we're going to have an invitation. I'll be up front. Some response team is going to come forward. I'll always be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. But you can also just make a commitment right where you're at to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm discouraged, but I know that God is faithful. And I know that Jesus is powerful. And I know that his promises Give me hope and security in who he is. I hope that as we study these words uh, these next coming weeks, that we will be encouraged and challenged to live out, to fan into flame the gifts that we've been given. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning uh, to thank you for your word. To thank you for uh, this letter, these last words that uh, we have of Paul. And this man who is um, a person, a man, a human, just like we are. Uh, there is nothing uh, divine or special about him in, in a uh, divinity sense, but he was committed to the mission that you've given him. And as he is approaching the end of his life, we see this charge that he gives it not only to Timothy, but he gives to us to fan into flame what you have started in us. And I pray that as we uh, study this word, and the moments where we feel discouraged or defeated or disappointed, that we would be reminded of the power and grace and purpose of Jesus. That he loves us and that he has given each of us something to do, not to earn his grace, but in response to it. That because of what we have received through his death and his resurrection, we have a calling so that others might know the truth and hope of, as well. God, I, I'm thankful for the time I've had to share this pulpit uh, over the last five years, and I pray that as we conclude this series and I conclude my ministry, you would just uh, encourage us all to be faithful to the call and mission you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.